Welcome, everybody, to this mini-series. It's just going to be this weekend and next weekend. But we're going to take on a really difficult and hot topic in our culture today. I want to talk about identity. Now, the culture seems very open and willing from all kinds of sources and perspectives to speak about identity. And sometimes it feels like those of us who are followers of Christ, we, we are hesitant to say anything about it because we're afraid that people may disagree with us. And I guess we just live in an age when we all need to learn at times to agree to disagree and not feel like we can't speak what uh, we honestly believe. And so I know as I cover some issues today that there are some of you who perhaps uh, are not sure yet if you believe in God or not, and you're not sure if you believe that the Bible is inerrant. And so what I say to you uh, may seem somewhat offensive, and I want you to know I don't intend it to come off that way. I do want to speak the truth. I want to speak it in love. Uh, there are others of you, many of you, who are just very confused right now about what's going on when it comes to gender and identity and all the things that we're hearing about. And you're just trying to figure out what is the truth. And my hope is that after listening, you'll become convinced that God is real and that his word is truth. And then finally, there are those of you who believe in God, you believe in the Bible, and you may be thinking to yourself, I'm glad he's finally speaking out on something like this. And you and I have to be so very careful because, you know, God did not call us to be bullies or to use his truth as a club. We're to be loving and gracious. We're to speak the truth, but always speak the truth in love. So I know I have a broad audience that's probably watching and listening to this. And uh, all I ask you to do is show grace and listen to everything I have to say. And then you can discern and decide where you stand. And like I said, some of us may have to agree uh, to disagree. So identity is a big issue in our culture these days in, in lots of different ways. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to make you a promise. And the promise is simply this, that if you'll listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit and you'll believe that what God's word says is true, no matter what, you are going to find confidence, you're going to find peace, and you're going to find a joy-filled life regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what is happening on the outside, so to speak. Now, can I prove that to you, especially in this whole area of identity? You know, we hear a lot about identity crises, right? And uh, when it comes to mind, I think about the man who coined the phrase. His name was Eric Erickson. And uh, he was a gentleman who himself was very conflicted about who he was and his own sense of identity. He was born to a Jewish mother. His father was a non-Jewish Dane, and he never knew his dad. His mom remarried, and this time she married a Jewish pediatrician. Growing up, uh, Eric Erickson had lots of struggles. When he went to temple, the kids there would make fun of him, uh, calling him a Gentile because he looked very Nordic. He had uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, and he was rather tall. And when he went to uh, grade school, the Gentile kids teased him because he was Jewish. His father wanted him to be a doctor, and his mother wanted him to be an artist. And he became a very famous uh, uh, psychoanalytics uh, psychologist and worked a lot on the whole area of childhood and development. And perhaps his fascination and his interest with identity and the you know, trying to analyze who we are and explore who we are and, and know the meaning of our person 
uh, may have been driven by a lot of what he experienced in life. And you know, life is hard enough when you're a kid, just generally speaking. But then to have all the stuff that gets layered on top of us as a result of it, living in the culture that we do, honestly, I, I feel for our kids and our grandkids and for those of you who are raising those children. It's a struggle. It's a challenge. They hear such conflicting things today that they're, all, they're not even sure what they're supposed to believe. I came across an article. Actually, this comes out of Spain. And uh, the mental health professionals in Spain have gotten pretty grumpy and upset with their government. And that's because the government is uh, preparing to kind of push through some uh, transgender laws that would allow uh, kids without permission to have certain procedures done. And these uh, experts in mental health, and these aren't necessarily Christians, okay? I mean, it's just the general... Um, a group of them in Spain is very, very concerned about this. They acknowledge the fact that, yes, adolescents, kids have struggles and, and challenges that they need to deal with. However, this idea that somehow changing their gender is magically going to make everything okay, it doesn't work that way. And one of them, uh, Dr. Dr. Luisa uh, Larazzo, who happens to be the head of kids and uh, a young people's psychiatry at a hospital in Barcelona, uh, came out and made this statement. She said that the whole issue of adolescents claiming to be transgender has been exponential in recent years. And then she says this. She says, we are in a society where wishes become rights. When I read that, that really caught my eye. It's kind of like this whole idea that my feelings are truth, or truth is what I feel. When we get into a society where our wishes become our rights, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous place to be, especially for our younger generation, which is still in that process of those formative years and don't always have all the right information and are hearing so much from so many people. Another uh, expert, Dr. Celso Arango, head of psychiatry in a Madrid hospital, has also seen an exponential growth of adolescents believing that they are transgender. He says, and I quote, they come to us constantly. It is fashionable among them to believe that they need or that they can decide their, sex their sexuality, but nature is what it is, he says. And I think the thing that... Um, uh, most troubled me in that article was how they concluded it. And I, I just want to read it to you. They just simply said, um, right now we are in a society in a time where this global phenomenon has originated in the United States of America. When I read that, it made me very sad. You know, at one time we sent out a lot of hope and a lot of help and a lot of good. And I, and I know that we still do in many ways. But it seems like in, in these last few decades, we have also exported a lot, of, a lot of evil, a lot of falsehoods, a lot of pressure, and a lot of things that just don't add up to honoring God and honoring His Word. And that's part of our responsibility as believers is to make sure no matter what our nation does, that we ourselves stand on the truth of God's Word. Now, just one little sideline, I do know that there are some children who are born and they will have both uh, genders, so to speak, all right? They'll have male, biological male and female organs or 
but that is so rare an instance. And I'm not referring to someone who may be in that kind of a situation where parents have to make perhaps a, a difficult decision. What I'm referring to is the broader spectrum of what we're facing in our culture these days and what our kids are heading into. You know, uh, there's a, a professor of history, his name is uh, Dr. Daniel K. Williams, and uh, he said something that I thought was interesting. He said, political parties work well as highly imperfect tools for accomplishing particular aims, but they become horrific idols when we treat them as sources of our moral identity. Man, that is so profound. That is so important. That hits the nail on the head, so to speak. Because none of us come out of the womb with a sense of identity. Who we see ourselves as and what we believe about ourselves is a result of what others see in us and what others tell us. And so to arrive at my sense of identity, and it goes beyond sexuality, but to arrive at who I really am, I need to hear what the truth is. And the government and education and media and technology don't always speak the truth. And I also understand churches and religion do not always speak the truth either. But I believe that God does speak the truth, and I do believe that his scriptures are true. And if you disagree with that, again, like I said when we started, we're going to have to learn to agree to disagree in those things. I can't squelch you from saying what you think and believe, and I hope there's that freedom for me to do the same, as long as it's done in a civil and respectful way with each other. You know, talking about truth, um, there's a man by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. You may have heard of him. He was a philosopher in France, and... Um, he made a statement that I thought was very interesting. He said, if there is no truth, then life has no purpose. If you go to an Orthodox believer, a man who is very brilliant, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he said, if there is no truth, then everything is permissible. Or take someone like Philippa Foote, who was a brilliant intellectual out of Britain. Uh, she taught in Oxford at UCLA. She's passed away now. But I appreciate her honesty. She was an atheist, but I appreciate her honesty when she said this. She says, if you don't believe in God, there is no truth. And so that's why it's so important to talk about where do we come down in terms of our belief in God and our belief in God's word. I mean, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, then I can agree and understand how you could come up with all kinds of ideas and, and all kinds of thoughts about your feelings being truth or, or whatever it might be. But if you honestly believe there is a God and that the word of God is his revelation to us, then you can have a sense of confidence. You can know the truth about yourself. You can teach that truth to your children about themselves and about this world and where we are today and where we're going to be tomorrow. And that's what brings confidence and that's what brings joy. I don't have to grapple. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to wrestle because God has already let me know who I am in his sight and I need to grow into who he has made me and 
who he's made your children and grandchildren and you to be as well. So what if you do believe in God and you do believe in his word? What can you and I learn from that about ourselves and how can we apply that and teach it and use it as, uh, as a means of helping others understand where we're coming from? To answer that question, I want to look at just a few verses in the book of Colossians this weekend and next weekend. So Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul writes and he says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, all right, he says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Focus on heaven. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, he says, right? Not the things of earth. For you died to this life. And your real life, I love this, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, he says, and I love that. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Now, notice Paul's emphasis here. He says that our lives, in a sense, are, are married into the very life of Christ. And the fact that we share a life with Christ, and he talks about Christ who is our life. And so my identity as a believer is very much wrapped up in the Son of God. And in essence, what Paul is saying in that verse is, look, there are two, th two ways you can focus in this world. You can focus on the earthly things and take your, your idea of what is true from earthly people and earthly and worldly ideas, or you can focus above, he says, you can focus on, on heaven. You can focus on Christ, who is very God. He's seated at the right hand of God. And take your cue about who you are, what life is about, from what he has to say. But this even goes deeper, and it's even more exciting. Look what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for he raised us, God raised us from the dead along with Christ. Now look what he says and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Remember we said to the Colossians, we just read a few minutes ago, Christ is seated at the right-hand side of God. Now Paul says, hey, look, we're so intimately tied into the Lord through being born again, through salvation. Being born again is this new identity that God gives to us. He says that, that we literally are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms as he is seated next to the Father, right side. That is, we have all the privileges that Christ has as the unique and one and only kind of Son of God. He says, because we are united with Christ Jesus, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. Now, the wealth of his grace and his kindness is that he's made us one with himself, as shown in all he has done for us who are united, who are united with Christ. Now, just, just think about that for a moment, what we just read. It's incredible, isn't it? Let that just soak in for a moment. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've transferred your trust completely over to him, then your identity is wrapped up in God's. And God's identity, so to speak, up is wrapped up in you. And in a, in a way I can't explain, you become part of this, this whole Trinitarian mystery of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
one divine essence, three distinct personalities. You and I are brought into that by Christ and all the rights and privileges of Jesus are now your rights and your privileges. And everything that God ever dreamed of for you is there in Christ and we spiritually realize it now and someday we will realize it completely when we are entirely glorified by God's grace. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you think of yourself, can you see yourself that way? Can you help your kids and your grandkids see themselves and realize themselves that way? You know, for a lot of people, in all honesty, it's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. In fact, in the book that I wrote called Reset, I give a whole chapter in which I talk about this issue of identity because I have always wrestled with it in my life because of my past and what I experienced. And in that chapter, I give you even more detailed information and exercises that you can use to help recover or help discover your identity in, in Christ. But why do we struggle so much with this? Well, let's, let's, let's take a, a kind of a deeper look at that for a moment. You know, when theologians talk to us about salvation, by salvation I mean being born again. By born again, I simply mean receiving Christ into our life turning away from our sins and turning toward Christ, two big words come into play. In order to experience what it means to be saved or to be born again, it requires repentance and it requires faith. Now, what is repentance? I love uh, Tim Keller's definition of repentance. He says that repentance is identifying the idols in your life and getting rid of them identifying the idols in your life and getting rid of them so that all that is left is Christ. And all of your devotion and all your worship is to him and to him alone. Faith, faith is the act then of putting our trust in Christ as our new identity. Faith is then totally and completely identifying in and with Christ. Isn't that awesome? But in order for me to be able to do that, to truly identify with Christ, I have to deal with one more theological term, and it's this term, righteousness. <clears throat> you know, we talk a lot about righteousness, but what does righteousness really mean? What is righteousness all about? When Paul wrote his letter to uh, the Romans, in Romans chapter 10, uh, he, he wanted to deal with this whole issue of righteousness because there, it was becoming a problem. And I want to read to you what he said. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for you, for them, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and is seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In essence, what Paul is saying is, look, there are two ways to think about righteousness. 
I can think about it in terms of my own righteousness, self-righteousness, and what do I need to do, right, in order for God to want me, to like me, to accept me, and so it's all up to me. Or I can think about God's righteousness and what God does with his righteousness. He gives it to me in and through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, when I mention the word righteousness, what comes to your mind? What always comes to my mind is, is legalism. And, and I grew up in a very legalistic type of, of faith. And where it was all about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But do you know that righteousness truly understood is far more than, you know, conforming to something. Righteousness is actually a very relational word. Or to put it this way, righteousness is being right with someone. To be righteous is to be right with someone. It's a very highly relational word. And, you know, when you feel right with someone, it's the most awesome feeling, isn't it? It just feels great. Versus when you're not right with someone. And maybe you have felt what it means to be unrighteous, okay? Let me give you a couple examples. For instance, maybe you've um, attended a, a function and um, you uh, were not sure how everybody was to dress and you showed up way underdressed. I mean, everybody was dressed to the hilts and you came in with your jeans, with holes in your jeans and a t-shirt or a raggedy old shirt, and your tennis shoes on, and you walk in and right away you feel like, I am out of relationship with the host. I am out of relationship with these people. Everybody's staring at me and you want to get out of there as fast as you can, right? It's that sense of, I'm not right with the people here. I'm not right with the host. I'm not right with the occasion. Or uh, another example is perhaps you have... Uh, had the opportunity of asking somebody out on a date and uh, they've rejected you. I've shared some of the stories of my, my childhood and my adolescence. I, I think I told you this one before. I remember I, it took me so much nerve to ask uh, Brenda Phillips out to prom my senior year. See, I remember her name, right? Only because it took so much nerve. And I'll never forget when I finally got the nerve up to ask her to the prom, she looked at me and she said, you know, Dale, I like you, but there's this other guy, Gary Copine. I remember his name. He was in my class, who I heard is going to ask me. I'd really like to go with him. Man, oh man, I cannot tell you how how small I felt. I, I, it was like one of those cartoons where I kind of ran away like a little mouse, right? Tail between my legs. Be rejected, right? To, to not be wanted. It's a horrible feeling. It's that unrighteousness, right? It's like this sense that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Or maybe you applied for a job, right? And you came in number two. And they said to you, you know, you had all these great skills and we appreciated meeting you. You seem like a nice person, but, right, we chose so-and-so because they had more time, more experience, more skills. They'll fit us a whole lot better. And it doesn't matter how nice they say it to you. You walk away and you feel rejected. Listen to this. Righteousness is finding favor in the eyes of another. And I want you to know that you and I, apart from anything we could ever do or ever accomplish, we find favor in God's eyes, which I know is hard for a lot of us to believe, that we actually find favor in the eyes of God. You know, there was a, a, 
a guy by the name of Franz uh, Kafka, uh, who was born in Czechoslovakia. He was um, uh, uh, Jewish and a great novelist, a great writer. And one of his famous writings, Kafka's famous writings, was called The Trial. And it's, it's simply about a man who wakes up one day and then gets arrested, and he has no idea why he's been arrested. I have no idea. Why have I been arrested? So in his mind, he starts visiting like everything in his life that he can think of, that he's ever said, he's ever done, or, you know, and he goes through it. And as he's kind of analyzing and going through it, you know, he, yeah, that wasn't right. And I probably shouldn't have done that. And I could have done that better. And, and all of a sudden, guilt just starts pouring in. But he's not sure why he's been arrested. And I think all of us go through life with that same kind of sense. We know we're not good enough. We know something is, is missing in our lives. And so what do we do? We, we work so hard to try to fix that. We work so hard to try to, try to compensate for that. Ed Clooney, who's an Old Testament professor, put it this way. He says, if you have a negative self-image, maybe you're being realistic. Ouch. If you have a negative self-image, maybe you're just being realistic. And let's just admit all of us, because of that sin nature in us, we all have an image problem. We all do. We all have an identity problem. We're all trying to measure up. We're all trying to find who we are. We're all trying to know that we matter, that we have value. And when you and I, and especially our kids, are hearing so many voices tell us what we need to do in order to be valuable, in order to have identity, in order to be accepted. And we're struggling in some area in our life. It's like, we'll go chasing after that, right? I mean, as parents, the challenge today is, is just so unreal. And I guess I, I want to ask you as parents to kind of ask yourself, are you in some way feeding the world's perspective by sending a message to your kids that you don't intend to send, but the message is you have to have these kind of grades. You have to make this letter in sports. You have to play this many sports. You have to be this good in sports. You have to dress this way, look this way. Well, you got to drive a certain kind of car. You need a certain kind of career. You got to go to a certain kind of university or college. And what's behind all of that? What is behind all of this pressure we put on our kids today? We've got to be careful because without even realizing it, we might be sending the message that if you really want to be somebody, if you really want to have the right image, the right identity, then it's all about performance. You know, God's word tells us performance doesn't matter to him. You know, Paul struggled with that in his own life before he became a Christian. Philippians chapter 3, he wrote them and said, you know, I, I used to be all about self-righteousness. I mean, I dotted the I's, I crossed the T's, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anybody deserves some recognition and notoriety from God, it was me. It was me. But he said, when I encountered Christ and realized that I have to be as perfect as he is, then I saw how imperfect I was. Now I'm paraphrasing here. Read Philippians 3. But what he says is when I discovered that God wanted to give me his righteousness, and there's nothing I could do to earn it or deserve it, he just wanted to place it on me. He wanted to impute it into my life. 
He said, I took that old idea of righteousness and I flushed it down the toilet like human waste. So that Greek word skabala means that passage. That compared to the righteousness of God, my attempts to righteousness is just a bunch of poop. That's how graphic he is. More graphic, actually. He says, I flushed that away. Can you honestly believe and accept the fact that if you're a follower of Christ, he has given you his righteousness? You know, I use that word imputed. What does it mean to have something imputed into our lives? Well, the best way I can illustrate this is through some glasses I bought a while back because, you know, I, I was trying to avoid so much blue light from the monitors so that I could sleep better at night. So they said, order these kinds of glasses and wear those, which um, I know doesn't uh, help my looks uh, much at all. But, um, you know, when I put these on, it's supposed to cut out the blue light, but the problem is it turns everything like an orange-gold color. Now, I'm looking, I'm looking out, okay, and all I see is orange, an orange hue, a, a gold kind of hue, orangish-gold hue everywhere. That's because of the way the glasses are made. I'm looking through the filter of these glasses, and that's what I see, and all the blue light's been cut out. When God looks at you and me, he looks at us through his Son, and all the sin is cut out. And all he can see, all he can see is his son in us. All he can see is what his son has done for us. All he can do is see his son's righteousness placed over our lives. And what's so awesome, we'll talk more about this next weekend, what's so awesome, and we've talked about this before actually, is that God sees us as though from the moment we are conceived to the moment we stand before him, he will see us as though we never did a wrong thing as though Adam and Eve had never sinned and we were their children and we did not know sin either. And so my question to you is, can you believe that? Can you receive that? Can you accept that? And what does it take in order to do that? It's actually not that complicated. It's actually very simple and it comes down to a verse that amplifies something we read in other passages of Scripture as well. But I want to share it with you. 1 John 3.1. In the uh, New American Standard Bible, it says, Behold, and I just want you to focus that word. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Like, wow, amazing. What manner of love God has bestowed on us that we should be called, here's our identity, children of God. Therefore, so the world does not know us because it did not know him. And that's what's happening today. As the world goes in search of identity in all kinds of crazy and strange ways, I mean, even to the point of changing the bodies and hormones, etc., it doesn't understand those of us who are able to say, you know, I, I found my identity and it's not in, in my gender, it's not in, it's not in my abilities or my performance or any of those things. I don't have to work at that anymore. I don't have to worry about that anymore. My identity is found in Christ. Christ is my identity. And look what, look what 
Paul says, or John says, he says, we need to behold what manner of love the Father has for us. And that word behold, in uh, other versions say, see or look at what he's done for us. In the Greek, it means to, you know, to analyze. It means to investigate. And as a result, come to a conclusion. But I love the Hebrew meaning of behold. The Hebrew meaning of behold is to look with the heart. To investigate with one's heart. And I had an experience this past uh, week that has helped me understand what it means to behold. In my office, I've got these, uh, I got all kinds of pictures of my grandkids when they were little. Someone asked me the other day if I was going to update them, and I said, no, I still like to see them when they were little. And uh, the other day I, I was there, and I just, I, I was looking at their pictures, and I was just staring at, uh, at them when they, were, when they were really young. Now, they are beholding something on a television, all right? Probably a cartoon, okay? But when I look at them and the pictures I have, and I behold them, what, what that means is I look at them and I feel such affection for each one of them. I mean, when I look at them and I behold them, I can smell. I can smell their, their, their heads. I can smell that, that, that beautiful uh, smell when they're little, you know, and they just got their hair washed and they smell so good. I can feel those, those beautiful little arms, that soft skin, those soft cheeks. I can almost feel them when they are tired after a long day and they're resting in my arms and their head is on my shoulder. And I hear that and I feel that little breath. And I can just stand there for long periods of time, beholding with my heart the image of my beautiful and sweet grandchildren. And you know, I was, I was going to originally apply that this weekend to us beholding God. Taking time to be still and just to look at God and think about God and imagine who He is and what He's done for us. Seeing it and feeling it with our hearts letting it overcome and overtake us. And as I, was, as I was working through the message and getting ready to preach it, and I did not hear a voice again, but the thought just went right through me. I can't even tell you where it happened, all right? It went right through me that before I can truly behold God, I need to come to terms with the fact that God beholds me. And he beholds you. And when he sees us, he sees us, and we're so precious to him. We're so sweet to him. We have such a good aroma to him. We matter so much to him. Now, I know what you're thinking. You know yourself. You may not even really like yourself. I understand all about that. But it's not about your performance. It's not about your failures. It's not about your looks. It's all about Christ and what he's done for you and me. You say, well, that just sounds like that, that the father just sees Jesus and his affection for me is really because it's his affection for his son. Don't you get it? He would not have sent his son to die on the cross if he was not affectionate for you and for me. 
Christ just makes it possible for us now to be accepted by God and to be loved and held in his arms again. Identity is a big issue in our culture today. And I feel for those who are struggling and challenged and trying to know who am I and searching for all the ways. You know something? They need to be able to discover that when their eyes meet our eyes. We need to be able to look past some of the things in their lives that may bother us and trouble us and see in them what God sees. A child who needs to be redeemed, a child who needs to be brought home, so to speak. And you and I are the ones that have the privilege of showing them how much God loves them by praying for them, by serving them, by sharing with them. If you and I truly know how much God loves us, if we really know how much God loves us, you know, one of the evidences of that is we will love others. As my friend David Nelms, president of TTI, says, before we ever obey the great commission to go, right, and make the gospel known to others, we must obey the great commandment to love God with everything we have and then to love others the way God loves us. I'd like you to bow your heads where you are. I'm going to ask your, pa your campus pastor to come and speak to you for a moment about your relationship, your identity with Christ. For those of you who are joining us online, if you've heard this message and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I, I don't think I've ever truly placed my faith in Jesus completely. And I've been trying to earn, you know, a place before God. I've been trying, you know, I've been looking at all these things, reading all these things. I've just been trying to find out who am I. I've been trying to just come to a point of just feeling like I matter. How about today, right now, where you are? How about just handing your life over to God? Just say yes to Jesus. Right where you are, you can simply pray and say, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of wrestling. I'm trying to, I'm tired of trying to earn a spot on the team, so to speak. I'm tired of all the things the world keeps telling me about where my identity is. God, you know I struggle with my identity. You know I struggle with my sexuality. You know I struggle with performance. You know I struggle with whatever it is, oh God. You know what it is in my life. I struggle with that. Lord, I give up that struggle today. I need your help. I'm handing over my mind and my heart and my will and my body and my being to you and I'm asking you to flood me and take over my life. In Jesus' name. You know, if that's been your prayer and your, your heart intent, I just want to encourage you to tell your host online there and let us, let us get in contact with you and let us help you and let us encourage you. And don't forget to join us next weekend. And in the meantime, have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving.